0: Let's get right into it. Um, I'm pretty stoked about this series that we're uh, continuing on today, How to Follow an Invisible God. And just if you're visiting with us for the first time, just a small recap about w- w- what this is all about. Uh, we Up until Easter, we followed Jesus' path to the cross. And then after Easter, we looked at some of his post-resurrection appearances where for 40 days he was popping up among his disciples and revealing himself and teaching things. And then there's an event in history called the Ascension where Jesus' physical body, left the earth, and he goes to be with the Father where he reigns. So it's kind of weird now. He's still alive, but he's not not here. He's not sitting here. I can't touch him and talk to him. And in such a tactile culture that we live in, I think it's kind of difficult sometimes for us to conceive how do we follow a God that we can't see, that we can't sit down and and converse with like we're used to conversing with other people. Well, Jesus knew he was going to go away beforehand, and he actually prepared his disciples. He gave us some teachings about this very very problem, if you will, or actually he says it's a good thing. In John 14 through 17, uh, actually 13 through 17, Jesus teaches the disciples, he prepares them for how to get on without him. Now, last week we engaged John 15, verses 1 through 8, and I felt like we were finally getting to the nitty-gritty. Um, we learned in chapters 13 and 14 that uh, you know, we can follow an invisible God, and that it is a good thing, and that through the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus is present with us. But in, in John 15, we got to start to broach the question of how. How do we remain with Him? How do we carry on a relationship with Him? How do I live a fruitful and abundant life with God today? And Jesus tells us how. He says, just like vines have branches and bear fruit, so you must abide in me. We, t- we talked about how this abiding in Jesus looks different for different people. You can abide through remaining in the Scriptures and and reading the Bible. You can abide with Jesus And seeing God in nature when you take walks. You can abide with God while you're playing with your kids or grandkids or neighbor's kids. You can abide with Jesus while cleaning the house or times of silence and solitude or serving someone in need. There's really no end to the ways that we can stay rooted in the vine. And as long as we abide with Jesus and remain in that source of life, we're going to bear fruit. And that fruit looks like a couple different things. One of those uh, areas of fruit is in our character. Uh, Paul talks about the the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the character qualities I think we all want to possess. We really can't muster up enough willpower to do it on our own. But by staying connected in Jesus, we can possess those qualities. Another source of fruit or... or Manifestation is fruit, is more people coming to know Jesus as Savior, as forgiver, and as Lord, Master. And Jesus ended uh, John 15 verse 8 with the statement that as we abide in Jesus, we give glory to the Father. So as we move on in John 15, Jesus is going to sharpen his focus. And in no uncertain terms, he's going to tell us now what it, what it really means to abide in him. So if you stand with me, we're going to read John 15, verses 9 through 17. And you can follow along if you like, but sometimes it's helpful just to shut your eyes and let the words flow over you. Here's John fifteen, nine through 17. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. That you love one another. You may be seated. Joy. Joy. What comes to your mind when you hear the word joy? What brings you joy? Call it out. I want to hear some some ideas. What what brings you joy? Sunshine. You're not a very happy guy around here. <laughs> okay, joy. Yes, Freddie Montero. Okay, sounders 0 win. Laughter. Desserts. Ladies retreat on Lemmy Islands. Let's hear it for the ladies. Birth of a child, okay. Baptism. Okay, those are some great things, some great um, examples of what brings joy to our lives. Now, it's interesting, though, that none of us said, I find my greatest joy in following Jesus' commandments. None of us said that. It seems like, you know, our culture is kind of obsessed with finding true happiness and joy. And what's often marketed to us is the lie that if I just find what makes me happy, I could I could break free from the commandments of others and I would find true joy. That's kind of what the, the common, uh, uh, I don't know, ethos of our culture is. So Jesus' statement about finding joy by obeying his commands, it's... Extremely countercultural, and it might even rub you the wrong way and the way it comes off like that until you stop to think about it. Think about this. no matter how free we are, every single person on this planet obeys the commands of someone or something. See the quest for independence and freedom as our culture defines, it really just ends up uh, being us obeying our own appetites and desires. And what happens is those appetites and desires begin to control us. And it rarely happens in a moment. I I don't think anyone wakes up one day and says, I know, today I want my appetite for fill-in-the-blank to control me, right? Uh, Nobody says I want my appetite for power or sex or comfort or money or alcohol or approval or shoes, right? Escapism. Facebook updates, come on. You name it. Anything can become a master. And we can. our appetites can cause us to obey uh, a different master. When we don't follow the commands of Jesus, we do follow the commands of someone or something else. And one person described hell as where we get our way all the time. I mean, think about that. If we really submitted to our appetites all the time, it would be dangerous. Now, here's what happens. When we don't stay connected to Jesus, and we start obeying like our own appetites, it seems good for a while. And we realize that our joy starts to die. And then our life becomes this cycle of trying to find counterfeit joy, shadow joy. And you realize... I mean, you ever just realize I don't feel fully alive like I don't feel fully like scripture d- uh, talks about when you know somebody is experiencing this joy connected with Jesus I, I do and I recognize uh, that a lot of times I'm trying to find joy in alternate vines I'm trying to graft myself into something I think is going to make me happy and it doesn't usually work out it never works out Jesus calls us to obey His commands, and He calls us to do it for this one reason, that His joy may be in us, and that our joy may be made full. He calls us to follow His commandments so that His joy might be in us, and that our joy might be made full. This is the same obedience that, uh, that this obedience that Jesus calls us to is worth the joy that comes with it. Remember, the writer of Hebrews said that it was the joy set before Jesus that caused Him not only to die, but die a death on the cross. He did that for the joy set before Him. So that's got to be some joy. Now, what are these commandments that Jesus is talking about? Well, He sums it up in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Last week, somebody asked me a great question. They were reading this statement, this is my commandment, that you love one another, and said, does this mean then that I don't need to follow other commandments of Jesus like love God or that I don't need to follow the Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments we see in Scripture? Well, no, it it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, Jesus himself said, this is the greatest commandment. That you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that you love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments... The Ten Commandments are ways in which we love God, right? So if I love God, I'm not going to worship other gods, right? Like the Ten Commandments says. I'm not going to take the Lord's name in vain. I'm not going to uh, betray and dishonor my parents. I'm not going to bear false witness. These these types of commandments. It's the same thing as, as uh, I'm called to love Corey. I married her, so a, a simple statement could be, Love Corey. okay? But there's going to be commandments under that. Love Corey means... Remain faithful to her. Try and provide for her. Be respectful to her. Take out the garbage. Clean the cat box. It comes with a lot of commandments. It comes with a lot of commandments, actually. Uh, but it can, uh, what Jesus is doing here is not negating other things, but He's summing it all up. Here's what loving God and neighbor really looks like. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Now, of course, Jesus is talking about how he remained in the Father's love through obedience, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, if we're to love our friends, like Jesus loved us, that means dying for them. What a calling. Jesus is calling us to love one another by giving our lives for each other. Now, this doesn't mean that the application for this sermon is we all buddy up and we play secret service looking for ways we can take bullets for each other or looking for ways we might like fall under a bus for somebody else. It might come to that. It might come to that someday, but for most of us, it's not going to. I think what we often forget is that Jesus not only gave His life for us on the cross, but He gave His life for us for over 30 years. After all, who is Jesus? God Himself. The God who spoke the universe into existence, who breathes life into you and me right now, who enjoyed at one time and does now perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God that loved us enough that even when we destroyed our lives through sin and rebellion, He emptied Himself of His position and came as a, a, as a baby 2,000 years ago. He was born in a tiny, dusty town to an unwed mother in a stable, laid in a feeding trough, This Jesus subjected himself to shame and sickness and hunger. He felt the sting of rejection, just like you and I do in relationships. He served the poor, and he challenged the know-it-alls. He healed the sick, and he cast out demons. He was tempted in every way. He left his place of safety, and he gave his life to us for over 30 years before he gave his life for us on the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays his life down for his friends. Recently, I was in the hospital room of a beautiful young woman, a friend of Jesus and a woman of faith. She has an illness that affects nearly every part of her digestive system, and none of the experts can really do anything for her. And as amazing a love as she has, For God, despite these circumstances, I also saw her friends laying their lives down for her. Megan Howell is one of these friends who drove all the way back from the Leavenworth area to be with her last weekend. Brian and Rachel are friends with hers as well. Some of these friends have husbands and have children and they spend the night in the hospital with her. And they make phone calls for her to different specialists and different insurance companies and different therapists. And they try and do everything they can. They're laying down their lives for this girl and they pray for her. And stories like this make me want to be a better friend. You know, to love more deeply, to invest myself more fully in people's lives. So how might you lay your life down for your friends? How does that challenge you? to give up maybe position of power or comfort or convenience. Maybe you have some ideas, and that's good. But there's more here than meets the eye, isn't there always? You're like, Chris, you can't end this early. You never do. There's a ton of meaning in these small sentences. In order to get at the meaning, what we need to do is understand a few terms a little better. We're going to start with the term friends. Because from a 21st century perspective, we read our definition of friend into this text. What we really need to do is understand what friend means to Jesus. First of all, let's talk about friendship in our culture. What is a friend in our culture? Well, it's someone first and foremost that you like, right? A friendship in our culture, you hang out with people you like. You call them friends. A lot of times, friends in our culture share common interests, someone you enjoy spending time with, someone you share your joys and your pains with. And most of our concept of friendship is two things, personal, personal, and it's egalitarian. It's egalitarian, like we have to have some give and take in our culture with, with friendship. Just an aside, I try and remind us of this, but when we look at scripture and and we try and get underneath it and look at the historical cultural context, I want us to see the difference between now and then one isn't necessarily better than the other. Do you understand? So our idea of friendship isn't necessarily worse or better than the idea that that Jesus is talking about. We just need to understand what he's saying so we can properly apply the Scripture. Okay? So our idea of friendship in our culture is typically personal, and it's a like-like thing. It's egalitarian. All right? In the first century, of course, friendship meant something different. We need to at least understand it if we're going to understand Jesus here. Friendship in the first century was not private. It was always communal and it was public, not personal and private. So you were a friend to a group or a clan. And most naturally, your primary friendship group was your family. (laughs) Your family or your extended extended family, actually. So what you want to do is... uh, Publicly honor your family. You uphold the family over any other system or person in your life. Think of the Godfather here, Michael Corleone. He comes back from the war. He's a highly decorated soldier. He's got a great wife. He's got a lot of things going for him. But he gets sucked back into his family. His loyalty lies with his family, even though you know they're just the mob into murder and extortion and drug running and things like this. It, 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 that, the reason I bring that example up is because the Godfather is a great example of Mediterranean family centered culture. okay that's 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 out of the Roman structure that's a lot of like it was in Jesus' day. Occasionally, a different group would come along and demand that same type of loyalty. In fact, the Roman Empire was one of these groups. So, Dan, if you became a soldier in the Roman Empire, it was expected that now you would put your loyalty to empire to Caesar actually above your own dad, above your own family. So this is called fictive kinship. It's where normally you have your, your friendship group is your family. Well, certain, certain groups like Roman army or even certain religious groups would come by and say, your loyalty is over here. And the reason I bring all of this up is because that's exactly what Jesus did when he called people to follow him. You know, today we kind of think, oh, should I follow Jesus or not? You know, it's just kind of like a decision, like choosing a college or choosing a a dance instructor or a soccer coach or something like that. But it was not at all that nonchalant in Jesus' day. In order to follow Jesus and to to make Him your source of loyalty, it, it meant that you put Him and His group of followers above your blood family if the two were to come into conflict. Serious. Now these friends, whether family or army or church, were obligated to love one another. And there again, we have differences with the word love. In our culture, I can say, I love Mallard's ice cream. Specifically, a scoop of peanut butter with. Have you had the ground pepper? I know it sounds gross if you haven't tried it. It's really good. So you've got the double scoop going on with Hespey waffle cone. I can say I love that. That sounds pretty normal, doesn't it? In Jesus' day, maybe it doesn't, but. Uh, <laughs> okay. In Jesus' day, love is always a verb. So you couldn't just love an object because love always meant that you would act and you would act. With the best will of the of the object of your love in, in mind, so if you loved your your kinship group or your or your family, it always 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 meant that you you acted well toward them. So, let me summarize what Jesus is saying, so we can actually get it in our culture. We are to love, which means action. Okay, uh, Nikki read. Uh, 1 John, it says, "...let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth." So we're to love with deed and truth, okay? We're to love our friends, which means... What is our our fictive kinship group is the church. We're to love with action our friends, which means everyone in the church. Even those, this is important, even those you don't necessarily like... Remember, Jesus' definition of friendship wasn't buddy-buddy, personal-private. It was your loyalty to a group, despite whether you, you, you like each other or not. We're to love our friends as Jesus loved us. He laid down His life for us by leaving heaven to become a man and then dying on our behalf. That's an incredible calling. This isn't some lightweight thing where we sing a bunch of songs and feel happy and then... I mean, you can feel happy about this. I hope you do by the end of the day. But Jesus is calling us to a really high standard. A very high standard. He says, The way to be fruitful is to abide in me. And the way to abide in me is to obey my commands. Um, Here's my command. That you love one another as I've loved you. Well, next in the scripture comes a couple of difficult statements. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends. For the things I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Again, we have to be careful about reading our culture into this teaching. If I go up to my friends and say, hey, you can be my friend if you obey my commands. Not going to have friends very long, right? Because in our culture, friendship is egalitarian. We don't. One friend doesn't get to tell the other friend what to do all the time. I remember I went to Malibu when I was 17, uh, Jordan Loftall and I, and uh, w- there was all these opportunities of things to do. You could play volleyball, you could go swimming. and So each afternoon, we were, we were inseparable, but we could never agree on what to do. So in order to make a decision, we would play foosball. And uh, he's not as good as you, Eric, so sometimes I would win. And uh, whoever won the foosball game would get to choose what to do that afternoon. So that's how we... Had this egalitarian thing going on, our friendship. Not one of us didn't say to the other, You can be my friend if you come swimming with me or come boating with me. Okay. That's not the way it was when this was written. If you follow football, you'll know that Pete Carroll is the new coach of the Seahawks, right? And I know he comes from USC, but uh, barring that, you know, he's a good coach, at least in in college. And uh, after his. Kids would graduate from USC. He remained friends with a lot of them, and one of those friends was Lindale White, who he brought to the Seahawks to be a running back. And uh, the news a couple weeks ago is that the Seahawks actually cut Lindale White. Lindale White was not practicing hard, and he was presuming upon this friendship he had with Coach Carroll that hey, maybe I can just skate a little bit because I'm friends with the coach. Okay, but what he failed to realize is that on the football field. Coach Carroll wasn't friend Carroll, he was Coach Carroll. Jesus calls us to be friends, but he's still God. He's still God. In fact, just a few verses later, uh, we'll talk about this next week. Jesus, in verse 20, says uh, he seems to reiterate the fact that we are servants or slaves. So, what does it mean that Jesus calls us friends and no longer slaves? This is really fun there's really good news in the passage and there's two parts i want to point out first of all in first century judaism like many times in cultures estates and possessions from a family would be passed down to children and friends of family so if parents died the oldest son would get the portion and if there were no kids it would go to the next of kin and in some situations there was simply no more family so the slave of the family might Have all this stuff. But the slave could not keep anything from the family unless in the will it said, Upon my death, slave Eric is now free and a friend. So when Jesus says you're no longer slaves but friends, all of a sudden now we can inherit, we can inherit when he leaves what? Relationship with the Father. The kingdom of God. Intimacy with God that was not ours before Jesus. That's good news. Number two, Jesus tells us everything the Father tells him. He doesn't just demand blind obedience. He doesn't call us slaves. Slaves don't know what's going on. I remember a uh, my small group, I told the story, but I'll tell it again. Uh, it, when I got out of the Coast Guard to go back to school, um, I took a job as a construction laborer. It was really humiliating. You know, in the Coast Guard, I had some level of stature and a system that I knew. And here I am, working almost like a slave. I did get paid, but I <laughs> got treated like a slave. The boss would just yell, do this, do that. And I never knew why I was doing what I was doing. It was really demoralizing to to just work on something and then completely get moved off of that to something else and I had no idea how it all fit together. Okay, that's kind of what working like a slave is. A few months later, I got a new job. I worked for a new contractor. I wasn't a laborer. I was a construction, uh, a carpenter's apprentice. I'll never forget that first day I went to work and the guy brought me over and said, you're going to be working on this over here, but come here. I'm going to show you something. And he pulled out the blueprints. And he said, here's why what you're doing is so important. Because if this doesn't work right, all of this stuff doesn't work right. And I remember how it made me more invested in the project. I could really get into it because I saw the importance of it. I saw how it was going to matter to the entire thing. Jesus calls us friends and not slaves because He lets us in on the blueprint. He lets us know what's going on. He lets us in on His plan that He's going to rescue the world. He's going to set things right. And one day, He's going to bring His kingdom in full and recreate this place. He's going to take out all the things that are broken, the things that cause pain, but everything, He's designed it so that everything you and I do out of love will last So when we lay our lives down for others, it will have lasting effects. That's great hope. That's great news. I don't think there's really, when you think about it, what else is there to live for if everything we did didn't matter in the long scheme of things? What Jesus is saying is here's the blueprint. I call you friends, not slaves. I want to let you in on my deal. I'm saving the world and I'm calling you to help me do it. I'm including you in on the plan so that when you lay your life down, you might not see the result, but I'm telling you it's part of this bigger thing. Be encouraged. We're getting confronted with gospel right here. This is good news. And we're reminded that this is love, that Jesus first loved us. He laid his down, life down for us while we were still sinners. And he says, You didn't choose me, by the way, but I chose you that you would go and bear fruit. I don't think that really hit very well. Um, take just a minute. Take just a minute and consider your own heart. Because uh, this week, when I'm reading through this and I'm trying to prepare this message, it's hitting me how ugly. Some of the things I think about are some of the things that I've said and done. Some of the things I would say and do if I didn't think I'd get caught. So what Jesus is saying is, I know who you really are. I know who you really are, and I still chose you and appointed you. You know what? That makes all the difference in the world when we realize where we've come from and what's on the inside because then it makes me say, what right do I have to withhold love from any of you when Jesus has loved me so much, right? Two implications. If you're a writer, this is my word you want to write down. This is something to chew on. Number one, how might you lay your life down more fully for those in the church? How might you lay your life down more fully for those in the church? Here's some questions to ponder to help you flesh that out. Are you resistant to laying your life down to those in the church. Like, how are you resistant? Is there somebody you don't like? Somebody you avoid? Are you resistant to showing grace to somebody else? Okay, so that's that's number one. Number two, how might we, we as a church better love those who don't know Jesus wants to be their friend? How might we as a church better love those who don't know, don't even know that Jesus wants to include them on this incredibly satisfying life adventure? To be part of the rescue of the world. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, called you out, set you aside, set you off to the side, that you would go bear fruit. And that if you ask the Father anything in my name, will be done for you. We're going to transition now to our time of prayers for healing.